So James 1, starting at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the preaching of your word. And we thank you for the ways in which your word cuts us up and lays us bare. And we pray that we would have ears to hear that, that your word may do its work in us, that we would not just hear your word preached and, and go away and kind of forget all about it, uh, but that we would be attentive and that we'd, we would hear what your spirit has to say tonight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start tonight by proclaiming the good news that God is putting the world right. That's the good news. God is putting the world right. The world is a mess. 
We all know that the world is a mess, and we could probably make a long list of all the ways in which the world is a mess. But the world has always been a mess since the garden. It's always been a mess since the garden. And from that time when man rebelled, God is determined, he's embarked on a mission to put the world right. But the question is, how is God putting the world right? What is his plan? Well, he began by making a covenant with one man, with Abraham, and he promised to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's descendants. And later on, after liberating those descendants from slavery, God entered into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai to be their God and they would be his people. But Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, never were the blessing that God intended for them to be. Although he was faithful to them in every way, and although he gave them every chance to mature into the people through whom he could bless the world, Israel repeatedly put themselves at the center, put themselves first. And Israel did not love God and did not love its neighbor. Israel wasn't faithful to God's covenant, but God himself remained faithful. And he sent his eternal son, who had always been with him, to do what Adam and Israel did not do. Jesus lived a life of complete trust and faithfulness to the Father, and Jesus was the fulfillment of God's faithfulness to that first covenant, the one that he made with Abraham. Put it another way, God's fullest expression of his faithfulness to his covenant was the sending of his son, who did not put himself at the center. He put his father's will at the center of his life, and he trusted his father all the way to the cross. And so, in God's plan to put things right, Jesus is the mold, and we are being conformed to that mold. We're being conformed to his self-sacrificial image. And God says, that is how I am putting the world right. That's how I'm putting the world right. Not by steadfastly keeping the law that I gave through Moses, but by hearing and doing that law all grown up and mature in my son. Wherever people are listening to my son and putting his teaching into practice, my plan to put things right is in action, and all the families of the earth will be blessed. Does that make sense? We, the church, we are God's plan to put the world right. Not governments, not newer and bigger technology, not five-year plans, not better education. Us, the church, the called-out people of God who follow and obey Jesus. That's God's plan to put the world right. Now, the New Testament writers have a shorthand phrase for everything that I just said. That took about two minutes to say. The New Testament writers have a shorthand phrase for all of that, for God's promise and plan to put the world right. And that shorthand phrase is the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness of God. I think when we read that, a lot of the time, we read the righteousness of God and we think of God's perfect moral character. But it's not his perfect moral character that the writers are talking about, but his plan and his promise to put the world right. So Romans 3, 20 and 21 is an example of this. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so we could, we could read that as 
But now God's promise and plan to put the world right has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They were always pointing toward what God was going to do in Jesus. The promise and plan of God that come through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So as I said, wherever people are taking in Jesus's life and putting his teaching into practice, God's plan to put things right is in action and all the families of the earth will be blessed. Amen? So that's the big picture. Now I kind of want to go a little bit closer and hone in on the audience that James is writing to because they knew God's promises and they also were waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. But as we know, at the time that James wrote this letter, these Christians were being persecuted by zealous Jewish officials who were pursuing them even to foreign places and and grabbing them out of their places and torturing them and even executing them. And the leaders among these Christians have had enough. They don't want this to continue. They want to fight back. We can tell from what James is writing that these leaders want to fight back. And you can probably hear the kinds of things that these leaders were saying to one another. Things like, enough is enough. We can't just sit around and pray. We've got to do something. We have to fight back. Now, keep all that in mind, everything I've just said, and listen to James 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James isn't saying that an angry person doesn't reflect God's per- his perfect moral character, although that is true. He's saying that anger and the violence that often follows it is not God's plan to put things right. That's not how God is going to get it done. I think this had to be hard for James's listeners to hear. I don't think that's what they wanted to hear. I think they were hoping that James would say, yeah, it's all right, you know, charge on. And James isn't saying that we can never be angry, that it's a sin if you become angry. He's saying be slow to anger. Be slow to anger. He's saying that by controlling our bodies to hear, to be quick to hear, and to be slow to speak, we can give ourselves a wide space before we get up to anger. But for most of us, when we do arrive at anger, it's been a pretty short trip. There's been some initial trigger, and then there's anger. And it doesn't take very long to get from point A to point B. So James isn't saying you can never be angry. He's saying be the kind of person who is slow to anger by being quick to hear and being slow to speak. Think of how easily we get angry with with other people. We might get angry with our spouse, with our kids, with our roommates, our friends, our coworkers, our fellow drivers on the road. People on social media, politicians, government officials, and so on and so on. There's a lot of people in the world, which means potentially there's a lot of people to get angry at in the world. I know for myself, when when I get angry, I tend to run cold. I don't really run hot, but I tend to run kind of cold. But there was a time when I was was angry with a brother in the church, and I called him up, and I, I let him have it. It is one of the times I've been most angry in my life. I called him up and I let him have it. There was nothing controlled about it. And I apologized, not 
long after that, and he and I made up, and it's water under the bridge. But I still look at that sometimes, and I think, how did I go so far off the rails? How did I get so out of control with my anger? And even though I've been forgiven, I still look at it and and still think that was a great failing in my life, a time where I got really angry with a brother, and I, I, I was being very immature in that. Sometimes people will lash out in anger or in violence, and they'll say, I don't know what came over me. Have you ever heard anybody say that? I just, I don't know what came over me. Well, I do. One ancient writer said that we never bear a stronger resemblance to demons than when we're angry. Because if you think about it, a demon is nothing but a spirit that's become so shriveled into nothing but hatred of anything good, but especially God and his people. And so we're never, we never resemble demons more than when we're angry. God's putting things right through people who are increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus, who take on his likeness. And if in our everyday lives we're quick to hear, we're slow to speak, and we're slow to anger, then we will become a certain kind of person in the world. We'll become a new creation in the world, something new. We'll bear a likeness to our Lord Jesus. Remember that his trial was a, a real joke of a trial. It wasn't a serious trial. And yet he would not answer accusations against him at that trial. On the way to be crucified, he didn't rain down curses on everybody who had hurt him and was taking him to die. And on the cross, Jesus prayed that God would forgive those who were doing it. He said, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. He prayed that, they, that God would not hold that sin against them. That's Jesus. That's the mold. That's the mold that we're being conformed to. But if we're slow to hear and we're quick to speak and we're quick to anger, we won't produce the righteousness of God. We will not be part of what God's doing to put the world right. We'll just be a part of the problem. We'll just be contributing to the ongoing problem in our world. Whatever you hope for with your family, your highest hopes with your family, your highest hopes in your marriage, your highest hopes in your relationships, anger will never get you there. It will only drive a wedge further between where you are and where you want to be. Dallas Willard wrote, there is nothing that can be done with anger that cannot be done better without it. And I probably don't have to explain what be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger means, but here are some some observations. When James says be quick to hear, he's not saying don't ever say anything. He's not saying to be mute, to not ever talk. But holding our tongue gives us more chances to remember that we are not threatened by others. We're not threatened by other people. God sees us and God knows us. He's maturing us through trials. He's not just throwing us to the wolves. This person who's in front of me, who's, who's angry with me, who's saying these things to me, uh, may hurt me, but they can't remove me from God's sight. There isn't anybody on earth that can remove us from God's sight. I am seen and known by God. Nobody can change that. And because I know that I'm safe in God, maybe I can even bless this person. Maybe I can even think of ways to bless them and serve them. Maybe there's a way that I can somehow serve this person who, for whatever reason, has chosen to make me their enemy. Being quick to hear gives you more chances to put the world right. Amen?
Another thought is that we need to be quick to hear because as Jesus taught us, our speech is the overflow of what is in our heart. This is in Luke 6. And I'm sure that we can all identify with saying things to people that, that were hurtful and we didn't fully realize what we were saying. We were just kind of letting go. We were venting. And we weren't really thinking about the words that we were using. But we did it because that's what was really in the heart. That was there. All that ugliness was there. And then we opened our mouth and it all came spewing forth. So we have to be quick to hear and slow to speak because what's in our heart will come out. Another thought is that when we begin talking irresponsibly, it's hard to stop. It's, it's easier to just keep going rather than to back up and to, to quickly repent and say that we're sorry. A lot of times it's just easier to double down and keep going and things turn into a real grease fire quickly. And then finally, if we're quick to speak, we're almost certainly going to be quick to anger. And when we're angry, our bodies recognize what's happening and, and our bodies start to prepare for a fight. And when that snowball starts rolling down the hill, good luck stopping that. Because it gets its own steam, it gets its own momentum, and it's really hard to stop. So it all starts with being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The, pro- the progression that James gives, I think, makes perfect sense. Amen? Verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So the therefore connects verse 21 to what came before it. And so I think it's safe to say that the filthiness and the rampant wickedness that James has in mind is what's coming out of these leaders' mouths as they're talking to one another and as they're talking to their people. The kinds of things that they're saying has to be put away because it's rancor and it's hatred toward these people who are persecuting them. Instead, they need to receive with meekness the implanted word. And this is pretty loaded. So let's start with meekness. Well, meekness, first of all, should remind us of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Here's how to picture meekness from the Lord's life. When the mob comes for Jesus, he fully acknowledges that if he wanted to, he could call down 12 legions of angels and his, his father would send 12 legions of angels to deliver him. And yet he doesn't do it. Jesus doesn't ask the Father to send those legions of angels. Jesus could have come down off the cross and taught everybody a lesson. He could have done that, but he didn't do it. And so I think some ways to think about meekness uh, from the Lord's life is that it's a humble attitude that puts our strength under control. Jesus had all kinds of power but he put it under control and he didn't use it to his own advantage. And meekness is a humble attitude that puts our strength under control. Meekness is when you really do possess power over others and you don't use it to your advantage. It's an ability to bear offenses without fighting back. And so the meek can inherit the earth because they can steward power responsibly. They can steward power appropriately, and they can be trusted to steward power without using it to their advantage. The meek can inherit the earth and rule because of that. Receiving the implanted word with meekness 
should make us think of Jesus's parable of the soils. Remember the four soils. Remember how Jesus ends that parable. This is in Luke 8, 15. And as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Jesus says this implanted word is able to save our souls. And when we, when we see save our souls, I think we, we tend to think about going to heaven when we die, which, praise God, that's true. And so we might, receive this as, we, we might read this as, receive with meekness the gospel, which is your ticket to heaven. But I don't think that's what James is saying here. Instead, I think he's saying, with your strength under control, receive Jesus' teachings, which will rescue your lives from descending into hatred and violence. Receive Jesus' teaching, and that will deliver you from a life of hatred and violence. Because Jesus taught us to love our enemies. He taught us to pray for those who persecute us. And those words weren't just left in the first century. Those are words for his believers, for his followers, for all time. And if we control our strength to do that, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, we will be made mature like our Lord. We'll be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, as James said earlier in the letter. We will receive the crown of life. We will be saved. We will be delivered from everything hateful and ugly. So I hope you can see that here what James is saying in these verses tracks with everything that he said before. Trust God. Obey Jesus. Be faithful. And even if you die, you will remain intact and whole and mature in the image of Christ. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And it's better to be meek and humble and die in the conflict than to defeat your enemy, but to be hostile and hateful. Amen? Verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So here's the bottom line. I alluded to this earlier. The perfect law, the law of liberty, is the life and teaching of Jesus. When James points to the perfect law, the law of liberty, He's saying that the teaching of Jesus is the Mosaic law, the 10 words that we talked about last week. It's that all grown up and brought to maturity and to perfection. Jesus' teaching is the law all grown up and brought to perfection. That's why Jesus could say things like, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So that's the Mosaic law. That's the sixth word. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So is Jesus adding to the commandment to not murder? No. Remember what Chad talked about last week. Murder was the negative limit. It's the negative boundary. It's it's the bottom of the commandment. And and what Jesus is talking about in saying that if you're angry with your brother or if you call names, even that is not the perfection of the commandment. 
That's, that's just elevating it a little bit. But the perfection of the commandment is to be able to use our words to speak words of blessing to those who persecute us and to love our enemies, to speak good words to those who hate us. That's the commandment all grown up. Does that make sense? In Romans 10.4, Paul says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And that word end, it's the same word that we've talked about in James for perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Mature, something brought to perfection, to maturity. So Paul isn't saying that everyone who believes can just junk the law because Jesus is the end of it. No more obeying the law. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus is where the law was always going, where the law was always pointing to. He is the law made perfect. That's the law of liberty. We look into God's word and we don't see what we can't do, what we're not supposed to do, or what we have to do. We look into the law of liberty and we see what Jesus is making us free to do, what we're now free to do. When we open the word of God, it's not, oh, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. But we see all the ways in which Jesus is freeing us from ourselves to do what he came to do, to be a living sacrifice. Does that make sense? Okay, so what's all this about looking in the mirror and forgetting what you look like? Verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. So James uses the image of somebody looking in a mirror and then they turn away and they don't remember what they look like. And simply put, that's a lot like spending a lot of time studying the Bible and hearing sermons and yet going out in your life and not actually doing anything that's in the Bible or that is preached from the pulpit. It is is going out in life and not putting the word into practice. And so for for James's audience, it'd be a lot like having heard Jesus's teachings and yet still going out and wanting to plot against those who are persecuting them, about wanting to fight back. If we hear the word and we don't do it, we don't grow. And we deceive ourselves that we're growing. We can, it's easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that we're growing just because we have regular church attendance, we have regular home group attendance, we read the Bible. But if we're not actually putting the word into practice, we're not growing. Sorry, I lost my place. If we're getting a lot of intake and we're not doing much output, we're deceiving ourselves about how the implanted word is bearing fruit in our lives. And then James rounds this out by identifying three ways that we can know if we're doing the word and we're not just hearing it. And he uses the word religion three times. And I think the best way to understand religion here is something like devotion or piety. It's things that we do because we know God things that we do because we love God. That's religion. So verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So when you boil it down, James is saying, get religion. You know, get religion was kind of a trendy phrase a long time ago, that if your life isn't going well, if you're suffering all kinds of problems, you need to get religion. And James is saying, get religion. Um, 
you know, the people would say like, well, what happened to Jim? His life was a wreck. Well, he got religion. And that, you know, that explained why his life is good now. And James lists three ways to get religion. And the first one is to bridle one's tongue. And James will have a lot more to say about the tongue in chapter three when we get there. But he's already talked about um, being slow to speak. And now he talks about bridling the tongue. So this is clearly an important thing. And a bridle, you know, you may know is something that you use to control a horse. And so James is saying that someone who is truly devoted to God will have their tongue under control. They will have control of their tongue. It's not for us to be completely silent, but to be slow to speak, to have ourselves in order so that when we contribute to the, congregate, to the conversation, we can speak good words. <coughs> Excuse me. And again, James was writing to leaders who were probably wanting to spew fiery curses upon their enemies and rally their people to fight. And James says that if that's how you're going to show that you're devoted to God, that has no worth at all. That kind of religion is useless. Control your strength and control your tongue. Next, James talks about visiting widows and orphans in their affliction. And the word visit is a bit misleading because we might read that and think, you know, it just means dropping by somebody's house for an hour to spend time with them. And that, that's not what James is saying. It's the same word uh, in the, in the Greek, it's the same word that's transcribed from the Hebrew that means to deliver. When God visits his people, he doesn't just spend time with them. He delivers them from their affliction. And so what James is, when he says, visit widows and orphans in their affliction, we should understand that hearing and doing the word means figuring out the needs of widows and orphans and, and making sure that those needs are met, to deliver them from their affliction. And in our churches, we've talked at times about the qualifications for widows. Uh, Paul writes about this at length in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and he writes about the different qualifications for widows. But in the Old Testament law, the orphan and the widow and the alien were, were categories of people that Israel was to include in the good things of God. They were to make sure that those people, the widow, the orphan, and the alien, were not excluded from the good things that God was providing for his people. And so I think the categories are more symbolic than they are concrete. Let me put it another way. If we're hearing and doing the word of God, if we're looking into the perfect law of liberty, we will help actual widows and orphans. But we will also help those who may not technically be orphans and widows, but who nonetheless have great need. Does that make sense? It's not just purely widows and orphans. And finally, James says, if you're going to get religion, you have to keep yourself unstained from the world. And we might think that he's saying to avoid participating in non-Christian things, but rather he's warning against adopting the world's way of thinking about things. And in particular, not thinking about suffering the way that the world does, not thinking about power the way that the world does. Worldly thinking would push James's audience toward violence. Worldly thinking would say, what kind of God lets his people lose everything? You need to fight back. Or suffering, you should avoid suffering at all costs. That's worldly thinking. We talked about Jethro a couple of weeks ago, Moses' father-in-law. And he wasn't an Israelite. He wasn't part of the people of God. 
but he had advice for Moses that was good and that Moses put into practice. Worldly thinking contradicts the Bible. Worldly thinking contradicts what God has said. And worldly thinking particularly contradicts Jesus' own teaching. And if you repeatedly expose yourself to what contradicts the word of God, it's going to become like a stain in your soul. You're going to be stained by it. And it's going to be hard to get out. And it's going to influence all that you think and all that you do. And so that's why James says, keep yourself unstained from the world. So hearing and doing the word, showing devotion to God, involves bridling our tongues, meeting the needs of orphans and widows, and keeping ourselves unstained from the worldly wisdom that opposes God's word. And so someone like this is a new creation in the world, a new thing in the world. God takes somebody like this and through this kind of person takes ground away from the evil one, takes ground that the evil one has claimed. We live in a fallen, messed up world. 1 John 5.19 says this, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I think that's one of the most um, shake-you-awake verses in the New Testament. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This, is, this, this world is, in C.S. Lewis's words, it's the silent planet. This is the only place in the whole cosmos where God's will is not obeyed. Not anywhere else in the whole cosmos is there a place where God's will is not obeyed. But as we're conformed to the image of God, as we become like Jesus, God's putting the world right and he takes ground back through us. He makes us perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. God intends to fully take back what we have given to the enemy. So the application for the sermon, I think, is, is pretty obvious. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, bridle your tongue, visit widows and orphans in their affliction, and keep yourself unstained from the world. Or get religion and be transformed. But another way to put this, I think, is for us to think little and to think local. Think and act on the small and local scale. God's not putting the world right through grand plans that have huge price tags and big budgets. He's doing it through small local acts of love, using our power that we have for good helping those who can't help themselves, and speaking good words instead of filling the air or cyberspace with ugliness and with venom. These are small local acts, but this is how God's determined to get it done. This is how God's going to do it. Jesus said, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The small act of giving a cup of cold water to somebody in need reclaims territory from the enemy. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It doesn't put the world right. But a church full of people like us who control their tongues, who visit widows and orphans, and keep ourselves unstained from the world, that's God's plan for putting things right. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray, and then we'll come to the table.